Women Bridging the Gap is a freewheeling conversation co-hosted by Lenya Wilson and myself, Alexandra Detalia. Listen to our conversations while we discuss race and womanhood at the hearth level. Why don't we just introduce everybody to Jen Dalton, our guest today. I just love Jen. So I met Jen in San Francisco 100 years uh, yeah, ago. Yeah, you're asking me for a date. It was <laughs> But Jen Dalton is a writer, a sustainable food activist, an entrepreneur, a yoga instructor. What else? I use a polymath. I love that word. And when you first mentioned it in, in description of you, I had to look it up. I'm like, what is that? But as a polymath myself, I should know the definition, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that describes me. Yeah, but I also help raise money to send a group of 33 girls in Haiti to, to private schools. That's oh, that's life. right. You're, you're, well, we, and yeah, I we wanted want to, to talk, talk about, about that, that a lot. Because <laughs> you were also like, you are a painter. You've been a painter. I've been, a, I, I would call myself more of a collager than a painter. I feel like I did more collaging than I did painting. But I, I used to do these like really fun 3D, like surreal collages that were my my expression and my opinion of capitalism and all its BS. Jen and I started in San Francisco. She moved north. I moved south. There's so much we want to talk to you about today, but should we start with your book? Should we start with your novel? Sure. Yeah. I, I actually want you to tell the journey, tell Lenya the journey of like you doing this novel because it is such a manifestation of a dream deferred because you had it in like your late 20s, early 30s. And then here we are, you're 50 and, and you're like, you know what? I'm just, I'm just fucking doing it. And I, it's an inspirational tale in of itself. And then we have to talk about the book itself, which I mean, I read the book published, but I read an early draft of it. I know. Thank you for that. Back in the 1800s <laughs> when we were friends. Yeah. No. <laughs> so sure. I'll tell the story. So it starts with, I was bullied in fifth grade and it caused this deep wound in me that I carried along in my life. I mean, I still have it, right? I think everyone who was bullied carries their wound with them and then just deals with it iterations over time. Can you talk about what the specific bullying was or is it up to a No, I mean, I was 10. So I feel like I've, I'm over it at this point. <laughs> <laughs> It's not so much about what it was. It was that girl, you know, relational aggression that we all experience. Oh, you're on the outside. We're on the inside. And you, you know, aren't good enough. And you have to do these specific things to be our friend. Like, beg us to be your friend kind of stuff, right? Which is just humiliating. Absolutely. Totally. And who knows what I did, right? I mean... In retrospect, you're like, you know, you spend so much time thinking, what did I do wrong? Like, why did, was it me? And I'm sure that I was just a big personality and I wasn't the, you know, the top dog, you know, or whatever. And therefore, and I was feeling vulnerable or whatever, because there was a lot going on in my life and I was just a target. So for whatever reason, it was me in yeah. fifth grade, like it was someone else in the grades to continue on. And, but I carried this feeling. And of course we are mean, meaning making machines. That's what we do as human beings is we make meaning out of the things that happen to us. And I made it mean that I was not good enough and that I was not likable and that, 
anything that I did was never going to be good enough or likable enough by people. And even though like I was a writer from the get-go, from the second grade writers, you know, young authors program, you know, and but nothing that I was writing was ever good enough or I never felt like I could ex- put my full expression into the writing because I was scared. And yeah. so I did a lot of journaling in my life. And I did a lot of journaling to overcome a lot of these feelings, especially in my 20s, where I was doing a lot of inner child work and really diving into all these you know, just deep wounds around being bullied, also growing up in a household that was very chaotic. I'm the oldest of four. It was just a really chaotic home. I I remember thinking, well, why don't I just write a book about this? Because when I was experiencing this and when I was reading all of my young adult books and things like that, there never seemed to be any stories about girls that were also bullied that really talked about, here's what it feels like. And so I felt like I owed it to the bullied girls to tell a story of these are the true feelings. This is what it leaves you with. I want to interrupt you just for a second because I want to tie this back. Lenya and I both loved Little House on the Prairie, like the books growing up, oh, you yeah. too. And, but what you're saying this and it's resonating with me because there were bullies in our young adult in childhood fiction, like no. Nellie yes. from Little House on the Prairie. But it was never about the story, the point of view, right? The protagonist was never the person bullied. It was always just somebody off to the edge, right? Laura Ingalls was the the hero and she wouldn't take the bullying. And it wasn't about the, the victim or the survivor of the bullying that was the, the center of the story. So, you know, I'm thinking about this and I was like, oh, it's you're totally right. It's never about the person being yeah. bullied, who's the hero of well, the story. Well, at the time, you know, this was pre-internet in the '90s when I was writing this book and re- recording my own thoughts and feelings about my experience. So there were all these resources, you know. Now there's just there's so much conversation about bullying, and you know there are all these great programs, and people are talking about it, and women are talking about it. But we didn't talk about it then. It was something that, like, you didn't even really talk about it to your parents. Definitely didn't have these conversations amongst one another. So anyway, I wrote the story. It took me 10 years to write it in writing groups, through transcribing journals into a story that became, you know, a creative nonfiction account of my true experience. And uh, I workshopped it, you know, I shared it with friends like you and in my writing group and, you know, met people in cafes and wrote it. And I eventually, after reading a Stephen King book, his book on writing, where he said, one of my greatest triumphs was trying to get my agent and get published. And he would just hang all of his rejection letters as a point of pride inside of his home. And I was like, all right, I'm just going to find an agent. There's a there's room for you. Beverly Cleary just passed away. I know. It was so sad. I was like, oh, Beverly. I really was sad, too. Yeah. So, you know, again, yeah, she wrote books for the average kid, right? And so I want to write a book for the average bullied girl. And I, you know, I got this agent in New York. So it was the 90s. And I, you know... As I like to say, I had my Carrie Bradshaw moment in New York City, like running around with my cute little heels on where I was like, oh, I have no clue. Why do people wear heels in New York? They don't. (laughs) Only on TV. They don't. And so (laughs) I had the worst blisters of my life. But anyway, I met her. We, you know, we talk about the book. She's 
you know, she's really excited about it. Of course, blogs at that point are starting to like become a thing and she's got to start a blog, this and this. Anyway, my book is kind of, it's YA, but it's also a book that adult women can read. And I, she had a difficult time selling it. And just because, you know, A, I didn't have a blog presence. B, you know, she just couldn't find it a house for it, right? Well, it was before Hunger Games. And so it was really before YA books became marketable as adult books. Exactly. It was just right at that space. And so the world wasn't ready for me. But anyway, it was just this whole thing. It was like a year of trying to sell it. It didn't happen. And then there was this moment where I like read the book on my front porch. I was living in the Castro. I will just never forget just sitting there one night and just reading my book myself from start to finish. And I felt really proud of it. And I laughed and I cried and I'm like, you know what? This is good. And I did this and I'm healing constantly from this, this story in my own life. And I just put it away in a drawer and I just was like, it was good. It was an experience. And they say as a writer, I remember, I think it was Dorothy Allison said it, any writer should take 10 years to write their first book. And then after that, you know, you've figured out the craft and it's okay for you to start working on other things. Not that I wasn't also like writing poetry and studying with Diane DePrima and doing all these other things in the interim. But so I set it aside, flash forward to, you know, I'm 49 years old. I'm lying in bed with my new husband and he's so keep talking about how you wrote this book. What is this thing? Can I read it? And I'm thinking, Oh, I don't know. Do I want him to read the like deep, dark, tale of my bullying experience but I'm like of course honey yes you can read my book and he's very well read and he was just like you know what this is good you should do something with it and so simultaneously I was also working on becoming alcohol free and that gives you a lot of extra free time when you're not buzzed and you know I was like well I guess I'll self-publish it on Amazon and figure out how that whole self-publishing thing works these days and it's actually quite easy and fun. And I did it. And I had a designer friend make a cover. And so now I'm on this self-publishing journey and this, you know, this whole journey around, you know, promoting it and getting it out there. And I just, so you guys know, I did mail it to Judy Bloom a few weeks ago. And I was just like, I love you. You're my inspiration. You know, she's 80 something years old and she lives in Key West, but she's still like my mentor in so many ways, even though she doesn't know it. And so I'm just putting it out there, sharing it with people. And it's started this whole thing of having conversations with adult women about their experiences and getting, there's really no space for some intergenerational conversations about this. And so I've created this thing called the Better Friends Club. And I'm going to start workshops, not workshops necessarily, but regular gatherings online for women to get together and talk about their experiences because the healing takes so much time. I always call it like there's like eighth grade rules of conduct that every woman has to figure out just to survive in the world. As a professor, like sometimes I watch stuff unfold and I'll tell my colleague, I was like, they failed the eighth grade because like, where did these women even just the concept, and this is something men don't understand, like sort of about secret keeping, where if Lenya tells me a secret, like not a deep, dark secret, but if she just tells me something she wants to keep private, 
I will totally keep it private. Although I might tell my best friend in New Jersey who doesn't know her because that's the eighth grade code of communication. And Eric's, but it's a secret. And I'm like, no, there's secrets and there are secrets. And he's like, how do you know the difference? I'm like, you just do. You know, I have to keep her private in her sphere. But if I need to process that information, I can process that information with a friend outside a circle. Like it's how do like women know this and how do we know that it's so relational or even just thinking about knowing intuitively if you have, if your friends like in a threesome, which is where I think bullying happens a lot, at least my own experience, like a threesome friendship in the eighth grade, but it is, you get involved with three people and you're, I walk in to a duo of friends, very aware I'm not going to say wary, but I'm just like, okay, am I the third? Like, how are my feelings going to get hurt? Am I going to be excluded? Because I got to say it happened to me in law school, like not bullied per se, but definitely subjected to a little bit of mean girlness from my friends. And it's, it, it happened to me five years ago at CrossFit. Yes. Yes, it did. Right? The mean girl situation was out of control. And I, I mean, and I thought these people were my friends and now I don't speak to any of them. And I thought at the beginning of this year, when the pandemic hit and I wasn't going to the gym anymore, that I was going to be so lonely and upset without having this base. I have flourished because I don't have that negative energy that I have to compete all the time. Energy that girls have even you know, when I'm really technically not competing with them. Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. And those three threesomes don't work in any situation, including, (laughs) including friendships, but in sex and relationships, it never works. Maybe foursomes, but threesomes, (laughs) no. The triangulation effect. Well, I did work with this other woman, you know, a couple of years ago, we developed this thing called sisters to sisters Alliance. And it is for threesome, you know, uh, situations with girls to, essentially for junior high girls to learn how to be supportive in a three girl relationship, because it is, it's, that's where there's a lot competition and jealousy. Those are the ingredients that cause the mean girl situation. And also the bullying specifically jealousy is a big one. And also this idea of what a frenemy is. And I recently did some research about where did this term come from? And it actually originated with this female journalist who was one of the famous Milton sisters. They were these like aristocratic young sisters of a group of six sisters in like the early 1900s. They were raised by fascists who supported Hitler and one of them broke free and she became kind of like a muckraker and this like famous journalist, I cannot remember her name. She also then became a singer and she opened up for Cindy Lauper on the top of yeah on the top of the record store in San Francisco. I'm forgetting the name of it, but they did a, a rooftop concert, and she opened up for them. Anyway, she was just like this really cool writer, trailblazer woman who spoke out against the funeral industry and all this kind of stuff. David Bowie called her like one of the most inspiring people in America, and she originated Frenemy. It, it was her, she began the whole word and she is all these great definitions of it because it is about these like subtleties in friendships 
where it's, well, they're my friend, but they're also jealous of me. Oh, they're my friend. We're also in competition. They're my friend. And, you know, yet they talk about me behind my back or they're my friend. And yet I talk about them behind their back. And it's just this multi-layered definition that applies to so many specifically, I think, female friendships. Yeah. Why do you think that men have these kinds of relationships at all? Oh yeah, they do. They do. I know they do. Cause I'm always around men. So I know they do. I listened to, I had two brothers. They have, but they don't, the difference with men is they just don't take it as personal. It's just not as deep as we, like you hear that your friend did talked about you behind your back, let's say, and it cuts you. Whereas with men, it's, Oh, dude is jealous, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it, it just doesn't hurt them. Like it hurts us. We take our friendships are more like sisterhood and their friendships are based around, I don't want to say superficial because that's not fair, but it's based on like stuff that just doesn't, it's not as, as deep. I, women collect secrets or intimacies as treasures of how much that friendship means to the other person. So if friend X confides in me, right? That's a token of friendship. And I feel like women collect those tokens and that's where the jealousy comes from. I I mean, I can speak to my hurt over and over again in friendships where I have found out that somebody didn't confide in me, but confided in somebody else. And I would for a long time, I mean, I'm talking about teens, maybe twenties, where I would really be like, well, what's wrong with me? I made it all about me and it's not about me at all. But I mean, (laughs) I made it about me thinking, well, why wasn't I confided in when it could be that I just wasn't there that day. It could be that I don't have experience with that particular situation or they just don't like me as much, but none of that matters. But I would measure my own worth by how many sort of tokens of friendship I received. And it was a fear-based way to live for sure. Yeah. Um, Well, let me say a, you know, it's because we value intimacy and we value conversation and it's how women, how we gather, we're the gatherers, right. And we're like communicating and sharing information, et cetera. So we have, it does have this value for us. But that's why I also feel like it is so important that we have no gossip policies, you know, just no gossip. And but okay, what do you like? Stuff. Let's let's classify what gossip yeah, is. Well, like, there I you go. Think, what is I, the definition? Def- I know what I just feel like, even though it's hard, sometimes it's important to just not share anything that someone else shared with you, even that they shared a thing. Because here you have this hurt because someone you found out that friend X didn't tell you a thing, but she told someone else. Well, if that someone else didn't even tell you that friend X told you that thing or her that thing, then you wouldn't feel that. So it would just be better if we were just all had this rule that we just don't talk about that. Like the friend told me the thing. I just keep it to myself. I don't have, because we, we why do we share in these things? Why know? do we, sh- yeah. Why do we share? Well, that's, what's interesting to me because that's where the pandemic has been interesting, right? So our social interactions have been cut in half. I haven't seen as many people. And then when you get together, you don't have news to share, you know, from I had lunch with Lauren. Lauren's doing X, Y, and Z. You know, you saw Adeline, blah, blah, blah. 
And all of a sudden you have to have other conversations and it's yeah, how about talking about our ideas and our philosophies and our creative projects and the things that we're passionate about as opposed to talking about other people. And also you find that social events are a lot shorter. Like I'm just like, okay, it's an hour, get out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, the end of the pandemic will hopefully present an opportunity for us to reshape things in the ways that we want them to go. I mean, I too am like my tolerance for a social situation is completely different than it was before. I'm like, yeah, an hour. That was good. Move on. But sometimes, but lately, when I catch up with certain people, I want to know what's happening on in the in the group because I'm so isolated by myself. And so I have I, right. I caught up with one person, and I the first thing I was like, I want to know what happened to this and what happened to that and what happened to this. And I didn't have any gossip to give because there's nothing I'm doing, but I want to hear all theirs. Right. I mean, it's not to say don't share with your friends, like things that are going on in your life, right? You know, who said what and what your relationships and what's all that and how your sister and brother are or whatever. But I don't know. I just feel like there's a, there's an opportunity to recreate things. And, you know, we're growing up in this, you know, this culture of, you know, consumerism and magazines and girl culture and just all the messages out there are to maintain this way of being. Yeah. What's another way? I don't know. Exactly. So maybe there's a, there's a, a fourth way that we don't know about yet. That's less damaging to, and again, like you said, it cuts like it does. And I feel like that's like part of my book too. It's really just about like my first heartbreak of losing a best friend that I thought was the best friend I'd have my whole life. Well, even that concept of best friend, like even that is such a female concept that women don't let go of. I feel like boys have best friends, but then it seems to their buddies though. Right. And they evolve past best friends where women, I remember this moment and I think it was in my late thirties where I was like, why do I even use that word best? Like I have several different best friends who all serve different, feed me in different ways and hopefully I feed them. And, but it's so this concept of a best friend is just so like a vestige of middle school that we hang on to kind of desperately as women. Like it's their fan. It's a phantom because you don't need, and I detest the word bestie and I detest BFF. I, those words drive me nuts. Bestie all the time. I know it makes me nuts, Lenya. No, because when you, <laughs> now Two. I feel bad. Oh, no, I now I feel bad. I have three and I constantly like, I'll be like, you know, sisterhood forever, besties, blah, 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 blah. It's, you know what? You can make it sound cool. When I hear my law students like saying like bestie, it just feels, and again, you know, it just feels like women undervaluing themselves, like in the sense of making themselves. And this is really when I see students do it like undervaluing themselves because they're just, there's some shade of a veneer to it when a 25 year old is using that language. That's how I, but it's also fun. Yeah, it is. I'm not fun. I'm not fun. I'm always, I admit I'm not the fun one. Like (laughs) I'm really okay with that. I've grown. I'm not the fun one. Well, I've I've defined (laughs) fun and being real. Those are my two highest values. Cause I feel like we're on, we're having this, human experience. Let's have some fun. 
Yeah, yeah. well, like, I agree with that. that. Like. But so but it is sort of the bestie is fun. Well, right. I and I'm that's... not, and please, I don't want hate mail. Like everybody, <laughs> I just, it doesn't, it's not authentic off my tongue. Right. Well, and there you go. For Lenya, it's not exactly. Right. Yes. It's not authentic for me to use it. I've never, I don't know if I've used BFF since I signed some, my senior yearbook to somebody, you know, oh, you're BFF. I mean, I definitely use the term BFF. like, she's my best friend, but I don't say, but it doesn't. Yeah, I don't know. It's Maybe a- it's the tone of voice that bothers yeah. you. <laughs> Maybe it's the tone. You see, I've had the same two major best friends for most of my life. My best friend, I've had, I can't even remember, since before my son was born. And then, you know, Charmaine being my best friend for over 13, um, 14 years, right? So these two women have been a part of my life and shaped so much of it. I don't, I mean, I say bestie, but I really mean sisters. I get it. And I get it. And I have that. So I'm going to take it and you're going to laugh because it always goes back to childhood books. You know what term I use from Man of Green Gables? I use kindred spirit and I have used kindred spirit and like with all earnestness, you know, yeah. to mean like people who are like sort of breach the friend and become my bestie, you know, like in that sense, like it's like kindred spirit. And then I have people who also feel like part of my tribe, even if they may not be my kindred spirit in the mm-hmm. sense. And then I, and then, you know, for categorizing and I just try to avoid, this is what I'm trying to do. The work I'm trying to do is I don't need to categorize. So it is a yeah. human nature to categorize, but then you have historical friends who quite frankly, if you get sick, those are the people that you want around you, even if you don't have. So in a sense, they are like family. Mm-hmm. So you might not have as much in common with those people anymore, but still there's the history or there's the thing you went through together that binds you together for life. Does, does yeah. that make well, sense? That's, you yeah. Know? I mean, that's why we feel like sisters. That's why we use yeah. that term, yeah. right? That's why like soul sisters, I feel like a yeah. connection with so many women in my life, like you, Alex, I totally do. But it, it's almost not a matter of like or not like, or it's just more of like a matter of like, we're moving in the same flow together. And that right. feels really good. Even well, though we might be doing different things. Yeah. You know, you have friends for different purposes, right? So yeah. like I'm, I am always the person that most friends will call if they want to get a yes. You know, if you want to. Really? Oh yeah. If you, well, I've if you. i call you for a yes. You've never called me for a yes? Like to no. do something crazy? No. Oh, I'm totally the person you want to call. Better get I, on that, Lenya. You guys I will always just, say yes. So if you were like. like should I do this crazy thing or should I not? I'll be like, you should try it. What's the worst that can happen? That is completely my role in so many friendships. Okay. So that's not your role in mine. Your role in mine is to be that reasonable analytical voice of reason. (laughs) I can play that role too. I yeah, you're really good at it. What role do you play for like Charmaine? And what does she play for you? Charmaine would be my person to call for yes. She's always, <laughs> no, do it, girl, do it. <laughs> right. And for I don't know, from I don't know how Charmaine would say for me. I know for for my very best friend in the whole wide world, we 
I don't think we have roles for each other, right? And the thing, the really horrible thing with Nadine is that we're separated right now by all this distance. So, you know, we may not talk for months, but then I'll just send her a text. Hey, what's up? You know? And I don't know. We just, we're probably more like sisters. Yeah. Yeah. More like sisters. You know, I could never hate her, even if she did anything bad to me. And we've only ever had one fight in our entire 20, 30 something year friendship. Yeah. I don't have very many fights with women in my life. I don't feel like I've done that. Actually in my twenties, I did have one woman who I thought was a good friend and she like, I think we were drinking probably had something to do with it. I remember she she like yelled at me and told me she didn't like my life. (laughs) I was like, what are you talking about? I'm like, we're fighting in a bar because you don't like my life. I don't even like you in your life. Oh, that's me. It was awful. I'm like, why are you getting all Haiti on me? I just am like, what is this about? But that was like the last fight I was ever in. Well, my fight with Nadine, we were like in our early twenties and it was just, I was worried about her. Yeah. You know what I mean? I was worried about her and we just had a difference of opinion. And I realized I overstepped and I should have backed off. It's not my, like, at some point we have to let our friends live their lives and make their mistakes. Mm -hmm. And I learned that really early in that, that moment of our relationship. And so now when my friends do things that I find like I'm kind of questionable, I may go to my husband and go, oh my God, (laughs) so-and-so But I will never, ever say anything to them. And I will still be there when things go awry. Of course. That's the the whole point of it. But yeah, I learned that really early because I remember I was 20, we were 26 when this happened. And I was like, oh my God. And I voiced myself and I, we didn't speak for two weeks and it was the worst two weeks of my life Mm -hmm. because there's nobody that I want to call when something good happens other than her. And I could not talk to her for two weeks about anything. Yeah. That's hard. What a great lesson. That's also like figuring out your boundaries. Yes. Jen, like your oldest friend, Miranda, like, what are you for her? What role do you play a role? I feel like I play the role of. Of, of allowing her to let loose a little bit every once in a while, especially if she comes up and visits me like in San Francisco or up here in Mendocino County, it's, she can be something a little bit different than who she is professionally and as a mom and as a person in the world. Cause I think she needs that balance. Sure. And we also travel together and she will make, we'll go somewhere and she'll just pick all these like fabulous restaurants. Of course, this is pre-pandemic times, but <laughs> I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll go to Paris with you. And then she'll like have the list of all the, re- she's already made all the reservations. I'm like, fine, let's just oh, go eat at all oh, these fabulous yeah. restaurants that you've done all this research to find out about. And I will totally sit here with you and, and we'll eat I've all the things. <laughs> I love it. So and then we'll just organize our day around our, our food schedule. No, I definitely see you as playing the role as appreciator. Like you appreciate every individual for everything they bring. That's a good role. Maybe that's what I am for Charmaine. Like you allow people to be free. Thank you. Yeah, I would like to think that's what I do. I want just, I want people to be able to, yeah, be who they are without being judged. And again, like we're saying, without putting people in boxes and defining them in any way, it's so important. It's we all but need But it's funny that you guys say you haven't had fights. I haven't had fights. I fight with my sisters, my real sisters. Yeah, but I haven't <laughs> had a fight, but I have drawn, but I have actually communicated hurt. I have communicated. I think, you know, you become a better communicator. So like I have communicated 
like this behavior is hurting my feelings. I have had friendships end and I'll own my piece of it where I think I've been hard as I've shed identities. I think I've been very hard on my friends. Not that I've been mean, but I'm probably hard to take. Like I'm a bundle of energy and I'm an intense human. And I think sometimes people are like, okay, <laughs> moving aside. And in all fairness, so when I was 29 or 30 and leaving law, like and leaving practice behind, and I was shedding my identity, I was like, I really want to write. Don't identify me. I don't want to identify with this anymore. Like my poor friends from law school, they're all trying to pay back their student loans. They're just trying to be like normal people. And I'm like trying to go in a different direction. And I, you know, I don't really have any friends from law school. Like I, my friend, Tony, we're, we, you know, I have a bunch of Facebook friends from law school and I have one friend that I'm kind of back in touch with. And I apologized to him, to him right away. <laughs> he was like, I don't remember that. I was like, it's because we're old now and we don't, you know, don't even remember. But I also find that there are those intense friendships that burn on both ends that you know aren't going to last. I mean, have you had those friends, Jen and Lenya? Yes. All the time for me. I, because I reinvent myself quite frequently, I am in and out of those kind of super, they're not superficial, but you know what I mean? Those kind of friendships that aren't going to, you know, and then there's those that actually understand that I change and are able to hang on. But if you can't, if you can't understand that, that I'm a shapeshifter and you can't roll with it, then you're gone. And I I'm, love I'm that a, description of you. So you good. are. I'm a shapeshifter. So, and every now, and I'm terrible because I'll just stop calling you. I'll just stop texting you. I'll just stop engaging with you because you just don't suit my purpose anymore or yeah. fit in my life in any kind of way. And I'm, I mean, I know I'm horrible like that, but I'm okay with it now. Well, I think it's good to know who you are, you know, like to be a shapeshifter. I'm a shapeshifter too, I think. I'm constantly reinventing, especially around work. Oh, I do this now. Mm -hmm. I'm working in this field. I'm doing this. And, you know, I meet all kinds of people and I want to stay in touch with them, but they actually also don't necessarily fit into my life anymore. And that has to be okay. And I think that's what makes life exciting. Again, let's have some fun. Like there's billions of us, you know, and yeah. we have this like great opportunity to meet all these people. And then we've got these people in our life who are like family, who are our soul connections, our kindreds. And then we can kind of, you know, have them as our like base of stability. And then we can go off and experiment with all these other people and you know, get new energy, new life, new ideas, new opportunities, new adventures, et cetera. Feel like what fits, what doesn't. Do you find that when you're talking with the groups of women about bullying and female friendship, what are you finding? Because you must be talking to some mean girls in there while you're talking about it. So do how does that come up? Well, I think the biggest thing is that there's a lot of shame that needs to be alchemized on both ends. So there's the shame of the girls that are bullied, whether girls or women. I mean, there's bullying yeah. that's happening in so many different arenas of our lives. You know, I was just talking with a, a friend of mine who's being bullied because she's a divorced mom and other moms don't want her kids hanging out with her kids because they come from a divorced family okay, there's a lot of fear over there. Then there's, you know, why are they making her feel bad for this 
thing that happened in her life, whether she chose it or not. But so, and women are being bullied in the office. They're being bullied with their, uh, with friends. They're just having a lot of bullying, being bullied over text. Right. There's just a lot of stuff happening and no one's really talking about it that much. Right. And so the shame piece and just admitting that we have pain and we have shame, whether we're the ones who are perpetrating the bullying unbeknownst to ourselves or maliciously, yeah. usually it's, it's completely unconscious because we're, again, we're reacting. We're reactive human beings. We're like, I'm jealous. I'm scared. I'm mad. And then you just go and you do your bullying thing because we're not taught how to behave in polite society <laughs> necessarily, right? I don't know. I mean, I, you know, again, it's I I grew up on the the, you know, the other side of the tracks with the rough and tumble crowd, you know, and everyone was just yelling and screaming at each other a lot, right? And so you're just reacting. We're not taking a moment to pause and just be intentional about how we're communicating with people sometimes. So that's why. A lot of the bullies that I've talked to have said things like, well, I'm sure I was a bully at some point, but I don't really remember. And yet the people who are bullied are like, well, I remember. Yeah. It hurts mm. and I feel it. And I'm still, you know, unpacking what it all means and how it makes me, you know, function in society as a woman. Doesn't this make you so happy to be middle-aged? Because a lot of this you just let go of with age. Yeah. yeah. Because I don't, I think it's really hard in your 20s when you're figuring out who you are and you're, and even if you're a shapeshifter and you're figuring out for the first, who am I? But it's, you're figuring out your group of friends. For so many women, there's still so much pressure to find a partner that's going to last a lifetime for so many women in their 20s. And so you have that. And then we measure you know, and again, we talked about, are you promiscuous? You have to balance sex. The pressure on being 20, if you're, are you promiscuous? Are you too promiscuous? Are you, we had this whole conversation in the last season about the word slut. Is it a good thing in your group of friends? Is it a bad thing? Is it empowering? And then it's all so much. And I do feel that somewhere between 39 and 53, you, oh my God, it's all bullshit. And you just, <laughs> you know, you're like, it, nothing is going to kill you. You know, you can just be like, you can be a bundle of contradictions. Absolutely. You and know, that's the whole like, point. we should just be able to be who we are. I love right. the whole, the adage, look, if you're not hurting anybody. Yeah. It's, just keep it going. Keep it be, moving. Exactly. Absolutely. Just do you, whatever you one second and just say how nice Alex's hair looks right now. Can we just for one second, just look at Alex's hair and be like, damn girl. It looks great. You kind of look like, you know, like you're, you, what's the, like you're in uh, Louis the 14th's garage or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) I like you're in it. You just want everybody to know that it is, it is just with a clip and I woke up and I didn't have time. Well, no, I know it's working for you. It looks really good. Thank you. I like it. I like it. I, you know, so yeah. Uh, Can we just say all of our hair looks really good today? All of our hair looks really good. No, your hair looks good. I think it looks great. Well, you're being very kind because I I slept on this. (laughs) 
I just went like this because I knew I was going to be on camera. And I, and I, put on, I zhuzhed it and put on a sweatshirt because I had my bathrobe on until 20 minutes before we started. Well, I, this is what I slept in. I was reading a book and then I realized it was a quarter to podcast time. And I was like, shit, let's talk about this. Well, is I, This is how Jen works. Like Jen, how, you volunteered, right? And now you're basically head of the board, right? Well, I luckily told the board, uh, I was president for a while. The organization's called Hearthstone Village. And we, I was the president and they were relying on me a little bit too much. And then I was taking too much on. So in these last board elections, I said, I just, it's someone else's turn. And because I was just taking, I just felt the weight of the organization on my shoulders. My own thing. I, I took that on. I created all that. But so now I'm vice president, which I feel like is a little bit more fun. <laughs> it's behind the scenes. I'm behind the scenes. I'm like, I, you know, I missed a meeting. I didn't feel terrible about it. But yeah, no, so essentially what happened, I mean, how I got involved is that I read this book about Dr. Farmer, who is a doctor from, I believe he was from Harvard. I'm not going to remember. It was a long time ago that I read the book, but he really inspired me. He was doing a lot of AIDS work in Haiti and I'm no doctor by any stretch of the imagination, but I like to think of myself as someone who's like a healer out there in the world and I'm very attracted to healers. And I was just like, for some reason, really drawn to Haiti. And I just kept that in my mind, I guess. And I was having coffee with a a colleague of mine and, you know, this was several years ago. And I said, you know, I've always thought it'd be really interesting to work with an orphanage in Haiti specifically, um, especially because I'm a not mom and I wanted to have an opportunity to give the love that I have to kids that need it. And she was like, oh, I'm on the board of an organization that helps support a Haitian orphanage. You should come to one of our meetings. We're having an event next week, et cetera. And I'm like, really? There's one here? And she's like, yeah. And so it turns out there's this group of women who work at the hospital here where I live, and they went after the earthquake and worked triage in Port-au-Prince in 2010. And one of them, who's just a total mover and shaker, always making amazing things happen, said, well, we should get involved with an orphanage. Well, the guy who was their translator in Port-au-Prince at the hospital said, I know of just the one. And it's run by a Haitian couple who live in New York. And it's really just their community of people. And when they first encountered the girl, it's a community of girls. When they first encountered them, they were just really malnourished and things were really unsafe. And obviously it's just right after an earthquake. And they first worked to get stability around the housing situation and the food. And so once that was established, we started looking at because Haitian girl, Haitian kids in general aren't adoptable post post earthquake because so many were taken out of the country illegally. There was just no process for it. There was so much destruction that happened and so much chaos that a lot of especially specifically, I mean, I'm not gonna say all white people, but a lot of people came in and were like, oh, these poor kids, let's gather them up and not even think about are their parents still alive? What's going wow. on? And so wow. they put a halt to adoptions. And so anyway, our philosophy is if they can't leave the country, how do we help empower them to become good citizens, to become the next leaders of Haiti, to help them get out of poverty? Well, educating girls is like the number one way of getting families, any society out of poverty. And so most orphanages in Haiti 
bring teachers into the orphanages and create their own schools inside of the orphanages. We don't do that. We raise money to send the girls to private schools that are outside of their neighborhood or in their neighborhood that are uh, academically appropriate for their aptitude. Mm -hmm. And so we have an education director in Port-au-Prince who works with the girls one-on-one all the time. And then we have an education specialist on our board who works with him to make sure that we're sending them to the best schools and that they're getting the education that they need. And just so you know, all of the schools in Haiti are private. So in order to attend school, you have to have money. So only 10% of all Haitians graduate from high school. And so it really keeps the system in place, right? That so many people aren't able to get education. Just being able to speak French it's like a huge thing. And so our girls can speak French. They go to private schools. We have six girls who've graduated from high school in the last 10 years. And that is like an, a massive achievement. And now we have four girls at university. Oh, and, wow. Yeah. And so, you know, they want to be doctors. They want to be business people. They want to, you know, study law. They, they want to be translators. Like, it's so exciting to be a part of an organization that is doing something really positive. Now, granted, I don't know. Have either of you been to Haiti? I've never no. been. Oh, yes. I, no, I've been to the Dominican Republic and I saw the border, but I've never been to Haiti. Right. Well, it's, you know, it's one of the, you know, the most, you know, impoverished places on the planet, mostly mm-hmm. due to foreign and U.S. specifically policy that we don't have to get into, but it's, because I'm not as learned about it. I mean, I've certainly read the history books and things like that, but it's, you know, it's just, yeah. it's, there's a lot going, and there's so much civil unrest going on right now. And but, the pandemic must have made it even worse. Yeah. I mean, mostly for us, the issues are protecting the girls from being the victims of becoming what they call house slaves or, mm-hmm. you know, human trafficking for sex work and things like that. And so there are constantly targets for that. I mean, all girls in Haiti are. And, you know, we've had several situations where, you know, families know that, you know, there are Americans that are helping to support this orphanage. And so that means there's money there and Mm. that they've, you know, tried to say, well, we're going to send this girl to, you know, away to be a slave unless you give us some money. And I've also sat in on some conversations with some officials and things like that, and just kind of a scene like the bribing that goes on. And we're going to report you if you don't give us some money. And this, I mean, it's a very complex system. But we also, you know, we pay our staff a good living wage and they get room and board. And, you know, we're really working on creating an intergenerational community that's uplifting each other, that's based on what they need, not based on what we think they need. Absolutely. Well, that becomes so important because there's so much help that goes into impoverished nations that are solving problems from a white Western perspective. And so when I was in Malawi, there was people coming through that were affiliated with a nonprofit and they did the tour of Jacaranda and they did a tour of the village. And they were all just marveling about, they're like, we could buy everybody a bed, you know, and rather than the mat that people were sleeping on and we can just get everybody a bed. And it was so tone deaf because Mm -hmm. that is not what they would sell. People would sell the bed. I mean, maybe not everybody, but most people would sell 
the bed because that's not really what's needed. That's not sustainable and it isn't considered a need there. The mat is simply fine. Or somebody came and gifted, like this was early on, like Kindle fires to everybody. But nobody needed Kindle fires. Like people didn't have necessarily electricity in their homes. So like, how do you... And Wi-Fi. And- right. right. And, and this was years ago because now Wi-Fi is really prevalent. It's really, I take that back. It's not everywhere. But, but it's, we judge them for not yeah. having electricity or something. Yeah. And it's rather than... People are doing just fine without electricity. Right. I mean... Granted, of course they want it. They want to watch TV, you know. Right. But, yeah, but the thing is, but it's not like, a priority. It's not a priority, and you know what? Or they do it. They do it so peaceful. They're so it's so peaceful when there's no electricity, you know. Right. But it's and also yes, communal, right? Exactly. So you go to the bar and you watch the TV at the bar. And I said I was going to bring this up: this concept of being a white savior, because I have a lot of feelings when I go to Jacaranda, and I'm very careful of posting photographs of me with black children because I, I don't want it to make it about me, you know, like here, look at me, the white woman coming to help. And I have a lot of, I have a lot of feelings about it. What are your feelings about it? I'm very uneasy about it. Like I, because I don't want to seem like I'm like the Western rich white woman coming to, to help a school for orphans. Like that just you know, I worry about that. Right. I've done a lot of work around that and our board, we do a lot of work around that. For me, I don't, I really try not to think about it in those perspectives at all. I, when I go there, I I really try to be in a space of they're welcoming me into their world. And I'm just here to share love. And you know, love is universal. (laughs) I like to think, I mean, it doesn't dismiss the fact that, you know, I am like this white woman in, in their world, but I don't try to think of it as I'm here to help save them. We're bringing resources to them to use in the way that they want to use them. And so I feel like it's more of a sharing relationship. Absolutely, I'm definitely getting something out of it, which is a lot of hugs and, you know, people to play games with and to do puzzles with and to, you know, to hang out and listen to their stories and and to, you know, learn to speak Creole a little better. And But I distinguish myself, and I'm not trying to say I'm better than, but when I'm on the plane ride from Miami to Port-au-Prince, you're usually on there with a ton of white people who are all like wearing matching t-shirts who are there for, with their church. And they definitely are like, we're coming in to save the world. I just, I don't feel that way. I feel like I have the great privilege of of knowing this community of people there that want to have me in their life. And we're all creating an exchange. You go humble. I mean, I go and I I do, but I also take lots of pictures with them because they're, A, they just hold my, they carry my phone around with them everywhere they go. And they're the ones taking all the pictures, but I don't know. It's very complex. And, you know, one of the, this white savior thing is definitely a piece of white supremacy and the supremacy of capital over people that I've been working really hard to address in my life. And having this relationship with this community in Haiti is a great way for me to alchemize it and figure out where it fits in my life. Now, Lenya, I would love to hear what your thoughts are on this. Lenya, tell us. (laughs) While you guys are talking, I, I was having these thoughts about Australia and the Aboriginal community. 
and how the Aboriginal community were given housing in uh, a part of Sydney called it's called the Block in Redfern. I lived in Redfern. Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah I've been there. Fine. So that's actually the last place my husband and I lived before we moved to Australia. We lived in Redfern, and it's very gentrified. The, the Block. One of the, the you know, and then they put all of these the Aboriginal people there when they were like you know this is back in I guess in the seventies or something, and you know the there was this, there was this like kind of, so they, the Aboriginal people live nomadically and living in a, it, and it's like projects. Let's just be, let's just get down that they were projects. When you put a nomadic tribe of people in projects and tell them that this is where they have to live. And in a way that they are not used to living, it, it was very problematic. They they didn't know how to deal with that situation. And then they were judged for the way that they lived. And it was, I found it very disturbing when I was learning the history of Australia. Then when I moved to Red, when I moved to Australia, it was even more problematic because being a black person there, a black person that's not Aboriginal, it was a very, it, it, I, I, I can't even put into words the the feeling that you get when people are talking to you about, about your blackness. I, I would get told about my blackness based around their knowledge of Aboriginals. And then, you know, and then meeting Aboriginals, I dated an Aboriginal painter for a long time, meeting and, and learning about their culture. And he had a lot of views about white people that would come into their communities and try to save them from themselves when basically Aboriginals weren't, they weren't poor. So it's not the same sort of situation of, you know, going into Malawi or going into India or going into Haiti. It's not this, it wasn't the same situation. They weren't um, poor or in uh, horrible situations. They just didn't live in the way that the Western world thought was the proper way to live. And so they would go in and, you know, with missionaries and try to change them. You have to live in a house and you have to have a bed and you have to have electricity and your kids have to live like this and you have to believe in God. And the, when they railed against them, all of a sudden now, you know, it just becomes this this huge culture clash. And so look, I, I have a lot of thoughts, but I don't know how to like articulate them about it, you know, and, and also just being a black person that in America, having people think that they were going to say, I mean, I don't even, I've, I remember being a teenager and having this white teacher of mine in a way that she thinks she was trying to help me tell me how, what she thought I should do moving forward as a career what she thought I could and couldn't do, not based on my academics, but just based on the color of my skin and where my family was from and where I lived because I lived in the ghetto. Well, I mean, what you're, what you're speaking about, if I can just, you know, help out is that there's this, there's a difference between systemic and systematic oppression of a people's way of life and coming in and saying, I know that we've been a part of the problem. And so here are some resources, do with them what you will, (laughs) you know, and we want to empower you with education so you can make your own choices from a powerful place. And we're not trying to say you can't live the way you want to live because this is the way you live. I I remember when I was, you know, I'm a student of history and anthropology and all kinds of stuff. And I remember reading about, you know, tribes in like Papua New Guinea that, that practice cannibalism. And I always thought, okay, 
You know, I mean, if that's what your tradition is and that somehow is empowering your community to live in your traditional ways. Okay. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to be a cannibalist and, you know, but it doesn't mean that. But I have to say, would you, I don't necessarily think it's wrong. Well, I don't either. But if you were at a dinner and you were served a person, would you eat it? No. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think so. Oh, see, I totally would. Like I, I totally would. I would eat what would... I, I would like to not know that it's a person. <laughs> so, but this goes two ways. I've eaten with families, like all kinds of stuff. We have to. This goes two ways. We have to respect that that's the way they live, but they have to respect that this is not the way I live. Oh, this is the thing that we never seem to understand. Mm-hmm. It's okay. I'm going to your culture and I'm having fun with you in your culture, but that doesn't mean I have to assimilate everything that I do. Absolutely. So I get. This is one of those problems with France that sometimes people, you know, can't wrap their head around, you know, you go to Paris and they expect you to have a certain level of French and they expect you to, you know, like I remember when I was there for a while, this guy, I used to go to this cheese shop and like, this was mean of him. He knew I liked cheese. So we would try different cheeses and he he thought it was funny that I would like to try anything that he would put in front of me. And then he put the, this cheese that was full of maggots in front of me and was like, you know, you have to eat this because this is what we do. Do you know what I mean? That was me. And I'm like, I ate it. But in retrospect, I was like, why would I have to do that in order to gain your respect? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Why do I have to do that to gain? That's not my culture. You know, I respect that you eat it. That's fine. That's fantastic. But why do I have to do that to gain your respect? And why do I care about gaining your respect? And see, this is when being 53 is so fantastic because now I would have just been like, um, fuck you. You eat that bullshit. Where's the nice triple three? (laughs) But I think what we're getting at, I think what we're getting at with this conversation is all the judgments that we have about one another. Yes. We're just talking about, which is you do you, I'll do me and it's okay. And I can still like you, but I can have my own, you know, boundaries, my own sense of self. And everybody has to have, everybody should have boundaries. I mean, that's where I appreciate the boundaries and I completely agree. But it's like, I, when I go to Haiti, I am not going in there with judgments and this is like maybe the beautiful part of our relationship. I mean, even with the women that work there and with Jean Wesley, who's our education director, Louchard, who's like our, he's like our muscle and our driver. And like, I trust him with my life. You know, it's just, I'm like, Hey, tell me all about you. Yeah. We're coming here. We're going to bring some money. We're going to, you know, pay you for your time and your, what you're bringing to this. And we're going to, we're out over here in the States and we're fundraising to send these girls to school and pay your salaries. And what do you need? And let's go see if we can get it for you. Right. And it just feels like a different relationship than, you know, oh, these poor people and they're never going to make it if we don't come in there and save them. And, you know, and granted, there are some like amazing people from the States who are going into places like Haiti and performing operations on people that wouldn't be able to afford it. And, you know, there's those kinds or bringing water and, and ways that people can have some sustainable water in their communities and stuff like that, which, yeah, maybe they would sharing the wealth. I mean, that's I think it is. I think it's and different. I think it's, and I think it's important to go in for me going in humble and knowing that you're going to learn something too makes 
a difference. But I think what you said though, Jen, is so important. It's going in without judgment. I think if we had all of these different organizations thinking about it in that kind of a way, it wouldn't, you wouldn't have this white savior syndrome. Right. Right. Cause you're not saving people. You're just helping. Right. You're well, and you're not, you're and you're them not help themselves. Yes. You're not proselytizing your own culture. I right. mean, that's really what it becomes is you're not proselytizing your own culture, one way to do things. So then you're not being a savior. You're just sharing. And I do think there is, I think there's a difference. Well, and as also just, you know, as a, something that's uh, going on in my, my work community where, you know, in the food systems world, we're talking a lot about dismantling and recreating food systems that are based more in localized food systems, et cetera, like dismantling capitalism and white supremacy in the ways that they intersect with our food and our abilities to be sovereign around having our own food choices that are culturally appropriate, et cetera. And we talk a lot about this word help and just how, again, that just implies, like Lenny, you said, we're helping them help themselves. But the word help in general implies that the person doesn't have the resources or what they need in order to help themselves. But yet, in so many cases, people do. They just, they need access to capital. They need access to land. They need access to education, you know, and they need, you know, whether it's like childcare to attend a meeting or they need a stipend to be at the meeting that you're at because you're getting paid to be there, you know, or you somehow have the resources in order to be there or to fly to that place or go to that conference. It's okay. Well, can we, you know, how can we share those resources so that more people can join the conversation? And so, you know, that's what we talk a lot about as a board too, is just how can, and we're not only a board of white women. I mean, we have several, you know, black women and one guy on our board. We're happy that we've got our new one guy, Brian. So happy for him. (laughs) But the thing is, you know what Connor always says when she does the work and she's, you know what, the world needs help and anybody who wants to help and don't judge, do you know? And that's the, and what's great. I have to ask one more question that at least I get all the time. So I'm posing it to you, Jen, as well, because I get this question all the time. We have so many poor communities in the United States. Why Haiti? Well, like I said, I was inspired by this book. And I don't know. I mean, for some reason, I stepped off the plane and I met all these people. And I was just like, they're my community too. And it doesn't mean that I don't do what I can to help my own community here where I live. And also when things are going on out there in the world. And I've got some extra cash laying around, you know, there's this woman that I follow, for example, who's a caterer in new Orleans. She's just like someday I would love for her to cater something I might do there. And she's just, there's a woman that I know she's a single mom. She's struggling this and this, Could you just, here's my PayPal. Can you help her out? And it's like, okay, sure. I mean, I don't even, I've never met this caterer woman, but she wants to help her, this woman that she knows. And sure, I'll put some money out there. I've, you know, so I mean, solving poverty is such a deep issue. And the way to solve poverty, when you look at it from a systems perspective, if you look at literally like where are the inputs, where are the changes that can be made is to give people money. That is how you solve poverty, right? So it's the most transformational way. And so that they can make their own choices with it. Okay. As two white women talking how do you feel about the way things are happening right now? Just talking about giving money 
Jen, with the way our government is handling the voting suppression, the reparations conversations, and the pushback against all about against Biden's COVID relief plan with giving people money, because that was one of the big things was they didn't want to give the checks. They felt that it was too much money. I love Mitch McConnell. We're giving people money to stay at home. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, was- that's white supremacy at its finest. Why should we pay these people? I, I mean, I'm a huge universal basic income supporter. So I, I believe that is the key to ending poverty. It, you know, not the only one, but also just certain tax credits, et cetera, that we're moving a little bit closer toward. I think that when you look at the diagrams of like how much other countries have given to people to be mm-hmm. victims of this pandemic, we are at the bottom of what other countries are doing. And it is so unfair. And we are yet then out there, just we're still at war with people. We're still doing all these horrible things, giving all this money to the military. I, I, oh God, I read this meme the other day. It's, oh, yeah, we're in this pandemic. And yet, how is it that the government hasn't been putting out information about how people can really like resource themselves and be healthy during this time? No, there's nothing out there where they're just still feeding us the same stuff. I feel like this is a great opportunity to start universal basic income from a monthly perspective, to be able to give money to people to do with it what they need to do to keep themselves in a healthy um, way, both you know spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically, Etc. And I think that the situation with reparations is deplorable. I don't understand why it is that it's so hard to wrap your brain around what we've done as a nation and to help people like get to an equal playing field. The stuff that's going on with voter suppression is to me the most frightening. It, it is like the most direct impact on the future of democracy that we've seen in our lifetime. And, you know, I feel so helpless. I'm like, well, what? I could call some senators and give voice my opinion. But the sheer fact that you're like an elected official, you go and you knock on the governor's door and you say, this is ridiculous. And you get arrested. Well, meanwhile, white people out there all over the place are not getting arrested for insurrection is, I mean, don't even get me started. It's so blatantly white supremacy at its finest. And it's so sad. And I, I feel like, what are we supposed to do? It's the concept that we call, keep saying it's white supremacy, it's systematic racism, and the people doing it don't think so. So it's uh, for me because the education because country, it, it's crazy. I like, know, but I, it's because Alex, so many people have not had access to education. Our education system has been completely ripped apart. So people oh, absolutely. are growing ridiculous. up with no concept of what's happened and who's in charge of writing the textbooks, corporations, and the people who are the victors, et cetera, right? Well, and who's so- in charge of the, the fact that while everybody wants local education, the idea that it's tied to local property values is already always making always schools- gonna, yeah. Have them be unequal. And then the idea that we've just gutted civics. You know, the concept that we have full grown, we have people in Congress who don't understand how Congress works. Yes. I mean, that's absurd to me. Where's the test? There should be a test before you get on the ballot that you actually understand 
civics. Like oh, that's Rachel Maddow's whole thing when when Trump it, was elected. Like, there should be an exam that you have to take before you could become president that indicates that you understand, you know, how the, the office and the executive branch and what you can and cannot do. Yeah. Yes, exactly. You're not king, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You're not king. You didn't like fight a war for this. But again, you know, this goes to, again, I just feel like we're living in a really great time to be creating systems and new ways of operating in the world that are reflective of who we want to be and how we want the world to look. How that works, I don't necessarily know. But it's day by day, step by step, word by word, action by action, you know, and standing up for the things that we believe are right. Now, there may be a crumbling of democracy as we know it, and we're witnessing it right now. It may happen. So who do we have to be on the other side of that? Of course, you know, I'm like a great reader of post-apocalyptic fiction and, you know, the crumbling of societies and how people are picking themselves back up, et cetera. But I just feel like there's a really great opportunity for us to be caring for each other in deeper ways. And I don't know what that looks like. I I actually, as a Black woman in America right now, have the most fear I have ever had in my entire life my entire life. I walked out of the street not long ago and mask on and everything and just was going for my morning walk and got called the N word from out of a car. No. In Sherman Oaks. And I was like, wow, you know, it's happened to me before. And during the, just leading up to the election, some woman screamed out that she's going to own me after Trump wins a second election out of a car when I was walking towards, I mean, things like this happened to me quite frequently, but this time, this was recently. And, you know, I had felt so hopeful after the election. I, I would tell Alex all the time, we did it. But we really haven't because no, this happened. What's he- happening in Georgia's happened. It, it just actually feels uglier right now than I have ever witnessed. The thing is, I think what this has happened is it's uncovered the ugliness that's been there all the time. That's, I think we were sort of living under a blanket of... You know, we always knew it was there. There were ways that it popped up, but I really feel like the Trump era just removed the whole blanket where we yeah. can now see, and it's made it scary because it's given it's given people a voice to be able to feel that it's appropriate somehow to yell things out the car at you, like where maybe ten years ago they fought that, but they didn't say it. Say it, and. I, That's where I actually feel the hope. I think I agree with Jen where I was like, well, we have to cut through, you know, by staring at it in all its ugliness. It's the only way we get to move forward step by step. But that's easy for us to say. Oh, no. Yeah, no, absolutely. I don't, I'm not discounting the fear or discounting the moment. I just say that I do think this is the, I, I think we needed to see it. I mean, I think we needed to see it. I'd rather live in an honest like now it's, it's not hidden now where we can get called out on it. Oh, and I think that's better. I mean, I think that's a better place to be. I don't know. I don't feel like it's better because I still feel now for the first time in maybe five years of living in this neighborhood, I don't want to walk at night. Yeah, that's horrible. Right. So I used to walk home from the bus stop when I lived, you know, in Sherman Oaks proper, I used to walk home from the bus stop walk coming home from North Hollywood by myself at eight o'clock at night, no problem, nothing, you know, never thought anything about it. Now I live in the nicer part of Sherman Oaks and I 
fear going home from the mall when I end my shift at night. Like I fear it. Like I don't want to do it. If Shane can't pick me up, I'm going to actually pay to take a lift to take me three blocks. Wow. No, I, that's, that, yeah. I mean, and what's the answer to that? I mean, what's. Yeah. Yeah, Lenya, what are you thinking? Like, I don't know. I mean, I know also that I have a couple of Asian friends who are feeling in the exact same way. And it's one thing if we, like, even walking together, I don't feel like that's a good idea, right? Because I'm like, well, we're still two together at Target. So are we back to, you know, white people going into, you know, the diner and sitting, you know, bringing our black friend to come sit with us in the whites only section and saying, no, we're not moving and getting dragged away because it's unlawful. I think, see, but that's what I'm saying. I think that's where we're back. And that's why I think Mm -hmm. we've taken all these steps back because I think we're back there, right? Like the girls at the store where I work on Saturday more, um, Saturday for a few hours, they're uh, all white. And they were like, do you want us to wait outside with you? Now, this is 2021. Yeah. And they're youngish and they're worried about me. You know, so I don't know. I I actually feel we've taken massive, we've taken a massive step back. Right. And then this. So what, how do we get, how do we go forward again? I don't know. I mean, it would be great if Stacey Abrams ran for governor against Kemp and we like then just completely flipped Georgia because that would be a show of strength to the rest of the, the United States. I know, you but know there I mean? are 41 other states, I could be quoting that wrong, that are engaging in these sorts of, you know, I know, laws. I know. But they also do hurt white people, which is what I don't understand. You know, they do hurt white people also vote absentee ballot. A lot of white people do not have ID. There are huge... Well, it hurts poor people, too. That's what I mean. <laughs> it, but it hurts poor people. But And so, and there are a lot of poor white people. So. Yeah. What, you know what I mean? And where, why aren't they screaming and yelling? Well, you know why? Because they've bought, and this is funny. This just came up in a lecture that I went to recently, but it's the idea of who buys into the American myth of the American success story and who, who actually doesn't. And so the idea is that we still have a portion of poor white America that still believes in the rags to riches story because we have in this world still an ethos of blaming the victim for should have known better because we believe like there are people who still believe in this meritocracy where, you know, if you're worth it, you'll go from rags to riches. And if people believe that people vote against their pocket. You know what I mean? So like you have like communities who vote against their interests because they still think I'm the American exception story. Like it's something special is going to happen to me and I'm going to go from rags to riches. That's still possible. And they hold out. I mean, it's that concept of manifestation or having a mentor, like bringing it back to Jen and Judy Bloom, like these unseen mentors. But for so many people, they look, that's how Donald Trump got his power. Like they believed his shtick and they're like, that can happen to me. Right. But I think, but I think it's also a, you know, it's a function of the dysfunction of our American education system and that so many you know, especially so many like angry white men are out there feeling like people of color who are like taking everything from them and, 
you know, whatever it is that they've disenfranchised them in some way. And I have family members who, who come from this perspective and they're just not educated and they don't know people who are of different colors. They don't have never had a cultural experience beside their own. That's right. very limited. And therefore they're just blaming, they've got to find some scapegoats and they're, sh- you know, they're just, it's just really sad. And I just, you know, I just feel like People just, we need to also just get to a space where we experience friendships and affinity for people who don't look like us. And yet I also fear that there's this possibility of us increasingly like tribalizing or there's going to be pockets where just, you know, people of certain colors are living together, you know, or, or like isolating to protect each other. But everybody wants to feel comfortable and safe. And so of then course. you start to think about concepts of enclaves. That's really hard for black people, Alex. It's really hard for black people because what, wait a minute, don't, I think you might be misconstruing what I said. No, no, no. I mean, if you're a black person of a certain economic status and you live in, there's a lot of people in that economic status, then you can all live together. But if you're one of those people, black people who are upwardly mobile living in a certain section, there aren't, there isn't a community. No, I agree. That's what's, no, I'm totally agreeing with you. Where do we go? Right. Where do we go to all be together to be safe? No, I agree. That's what's horrible. But I also agree that I don't think we should have to have enclaves. Like, I hope, like, we sort of get to a point where people feel comfortable wherever they want to be and however they want to live, and that we don't have to go into enclaves because enclaves are, to me, um, still, it's the concept of keeping people out and keeping people in, and it's a fenced, gated culture. And I would like to live in a place where that doesn't exist. I mean, I that's I know, but you know, I'm just trying to say that so many white people, in particular, from my my viewpoint, my experience, have not had the opportunity of living in a multicolored universe. Right? They a lot of people keep themselves in you know, yeah. their suburbs or their whatever. And they're like, now, granted, I didn't have that experience. I grew up in a very, you know, colorful environment in, you know, urban Indianapolis where whatever, I was one of few white people in my high school. Like I just, it's, it, and then I moved to San Francisco. I, I just, I, I love not being amongst just white people, but a lot of white people don't. And I also travel. I've traveled a lot of different places. And enjoyed so many different cultures and people that I've met that I've worked with that live in, you know, I've worked with a lot of people who live in China in my time and have traveled to China numerous times for work, et cetera, and have had people that I just love who are Chinese, you know, and Vietnamese. And so many people don't have that experience. And so they're fearful and they have to find a scapegoat to blame all the problems on. And when education is not there, there's this like Venn diagram of, you know, fear and hate and blame. Maybe I'm simplifying, but I don't think it's all education because we have lots of Republicans in in the Senate right now who are extremely educated. And there were Yale educated lawyers in the insurrection on January 6th. So you're talking about calling out Ted Cruz. You know who you yeah, are. Ted exactly. Cruz. But the, <laughs> but it's so it, it isn't just education. And then and there was this study because I just think some it's, it's just greed and we need to undo capitalism because there was this interesting study and it was 
they asked people, would you want a hundred thousand dollars a year? Right. Which means like you would be very wealthy, but everybody on your block would also just make a hundred thousand dollars a year. Or would you want to make $80,000 a year, but everybody else on the block only made $50,000 a year? And the sick answer to the study is that people chose $80,000 a year so they would have more than everybody else on the block. That is like that concept of competition is so ingrained. That concept of measuring is so ingrained that education is something, but we need to dismantle, you know, when we're talking about dismantle, we need to dismantle pieces of capitalism. And I mean, even for me, and I'm just gonna, you know, even the sense of just this, that competition is always good. That competition always breeds best. Like competition should have a place in society, but it's greed that is pushing a lot of this forward. Yeah. I, I, I like people want to hang on to what they have. I agree. Like Jen, what you're saying is that they're, you know, they're finding a scapegoat. They're not, people aren't educated, but they're educated people doing the same thing. And the people pushing forward that agenda in Georgia and in the 40 other States, those are educated people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's power hoarding. Power hoarding. And that is, that needs to be dismantled. I agree. I don't know how, but that needs to be dismantled. We started the conversation. Yes. I mean, a lot of dismantling needs to happen and we shouldn't fear it. We should have in our minds a vision of what we want the future to look like and allow the dismantling to occur and not get too afraid and needing to cling. Right. And then just embrace the change and just move forward and find a way where we can all just, you know, create this new world. I don't, you know, I, I, Well, you have to realize it's also temporary. I mean, like, it's so funny. Once you sort of make peace with life being a little temporary, you get a little more fearless, right? So in that sense of change, you can embrace the change and you sort of always think, well, what is the worst that can happen? And you're like, okay, I'm still going to be me. I'm still going to have this. I'll still be able to move forward. There's still love. There's still, and you just move forward and what you can, you start to realize what else you can let go of. And it's amazing what you can let go of. That's true. And doesn't help Lenya walking down the street at night. No, right that, I mean, but that, that's going to take a huge shift. I mean, we're in a place where Trump said for four years, it was okay to hate other people. And those people feel emboldened and it is. I'm just saying it's a great time to start following people like Sean King, who's out there like, Ooh, Sean King's problematic in the black oh, lives. Matter movement. Oh, he's why? Good. Educate me. I, what I like is that he's just like showing the pictures and he's like, yes, he's making he shows- things very visual for people to understand, you know, here's the difference between things and here's the person and here's, but tell me why educate me. He's, he's very problematic in, in the Black Lives Matter movement. Actually, he's been dumb because of just some of his some of his rhetoric. I'll, I'll have to get the article for you. I'll send it to you, Jen, where they talk about the problems of Sean King. There are better people to, to follow. You should follow Rachel Cargill. I do. Yeah, she's she never mentioned Sean King. Sorry, there's, yeah. <laughs> there's always a chance for or opportunity. For but, but you know what? He, yeah. he he has a lot of he has a lot of shareable memes. He does. Yeah, he has a lot of shareable memes, but there's not a lot of substance behind that. 
You know what okay, I mean? Okay, well, I a lot of shareable memes. And I, I mean, I have seen them shared via friends and I'm always like, well, at least they're listening. At least they're, they're understanding this situation. And I don't ever, I don't ever talk to them about how problematic he is, but he is problematic. But we need to know, you know, I mean, because that's right. it. We, we all fall for the yeah. flashy thing out there. And he is just someone who's, he posts a lot like this morning. Yes. I just like the reason why I mentioned him is because there was like a post He's on. And, yeah. You know? So I follow like Amanda seals and I follow, yeah, give us the folks that we should be following so that we are clear on what conversations should we be learning from? Miss Petty, which is Brittany Packnett Cunningham. She is, she was on the cover of Vogue because she's an activist. She's also an MSNBC contributor. She's an activist, educator, and writer. And her name is Brittany Packnett Cunningham. She's brilliant. I love her. Who else do I love? I love Bakari Sellers. He's also extremely vocal about Black Lives Matter without actually being part of Black Lives Matter. There is the president of the Black Lives Matter here in Los Angeles, who is this gorgeous man. He's on, and I can't remember his name. He's an actor and he is on Insecure. Mm-hmm. He plays this the third love protagonist. If you ever watch Insecure, it's so good. Yes. I know you don't, Alex, but oh my God, I love it so much. It's that last season. So if you're ever going to do it, now's the time. All right. It's a ray. <laughs> Issa Rae is a genius. I'll uh-huh. just have to say that. Oh, who else do right. I love? Give me one more. So there's one more person that I really like. You know, I, I like just following, you know, voices that are different than mine. You yeah. Know? And just so that I'm aware of, you know, what other people are saying that, you know, and. Oh, it's so important. It's so it's important. So DeRay, important. DeRay, his Instagram handle is I am DeRay. Tamika Mallory. She's. an extremely uh, important voice right now. Obviously, Stacey Abrams is also an extremely important voice right now. Movement for Black Lives also has some great information. There's So You Want to Talk About It. And... From there, that's a good start, you know, for you to start, like, just getting a a different education, just a different angle about the movement which I'm hoping is still happening. It is. It is. I do think the thing is, and I, when we do our reunion show, you know, when we get to being on air almost a year, I think what's happening now, and it's really sad, is that people are getting so excited about the world opening up again that you're seeing parts of the conversation shift. And I do think it's really important that it doesn't. That's the only way we will make the change. So maybe we can leap forward. So you're not frightened to walk home. Yeah. Otherwise it's just going to be left where it is and it's going to be worse. It's going to be worse. And I I just hope it's a temporary shift. Yeah. um, Well, I will tell you that the feeling, yeah, the, for example, I'm a part of the off the mat into the world yoga community where it's like just taking who you are in yoga into the world. And so the off the mat community is definitely holding space for this. There's like a lot of, you know, our food systems world. I mean, we are not letting go of this conversation, you know, I wanted to talk to you about that. I wanted to talk to you about this vision of having a food czar in the cabinet. Yeah. And like how that didn't happen. Oh, we got to, we're going to have to, well, you know, I mean, one thing that's great is that in California, we have department of uh, food systems and small farms and folks that are like, you know, supporting sustainable local food systems at 
the cabinet level or like the department level. Don't get me wrong out there. Put me wrong out there. I'm just, you know, morning. But yeah, we need this as, you know, a major focus. People just forget that like food is this, you know, the and the environmental working group just came out with this study that so all of the, you know, foods like Cheez-Its and Pop-Tarts and like all these manufactured foods actually make your immune system worse, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so unfortunately, that's the cheap food that a lot of people can afford. And it's just, it's making everyone sicker. And there's just more and more evidence to that. And anyway, I mean, I could just go on and on and we will have to talk about it at some other point. Well, you'll come on another time. Of farmers yes, definitely. And- we need to have you back on to talk about this because this is a huge problem in the black communities, yeah. food deserts. There was a woman who did a walked down a street in Brooklyn, in a neighborhood in Brooklyn. There was like a bodega, 40 different fast food restaurants, check cashing place. And then she walked down a street in a really nice neighborhood like Williamsburg, Brooklyn. There's a Whole Foods. There's, you know, and uh, there's a Trader Joe's. There's like a cheese shop. There's a farmer's you know, market. I just so you guys know, there is a lot of support right now that's out there in terms of funding around in the food systems world where people are really engaging in how do we get the funding to the right folks who are doing good work out there that are helping to create more equity in, you know, neighborhoods that haven't traditionally had grocery stores or in urban, you know, gardens or in just educating people and also supporting black and Asian farmers, et cetera, or or farmers who are farming from like their, you know, Miles and I are doing a project working with some folks that are supporting refugee communities outside of Atlanta. There's just a lot of work happening. It's a lot of it's behind the scenes because the food systems movement doesn't get a lot of press. Right. It's not sexy. It should be, but but it should be. But there's a lot of great work happening. So we should feel really good about it. We're definitely going to have you on another time to talk all about that. And yeah. what's your novel? Where's it available? Oh. What's the name of your novel? Where's it available? <laughs> well, it's called Of Butterflies and Bullies. And you can learn more about it on my website, which is butterfliesbullies.com. And uh, yeah, follow me on Instagram at Dalton underscore Jen. And, and also, what is the name of the orphanage where you're on uh, the board? Well, go to Hearthstone, H E A R T H. S-T-O-N-E dash village.org. You can learn more about it. It's called Mavel Montanel Orphanage Foundation. And please, yeah, we are well, we'll put all the links girls to college. <laughs> we'll put all the links in the show notes because this is this was a great episode. Thank you so much, Jen. Thank you. Want you back for sure. Thank you. Thank you. And make sure everybody to listen to us. We're Women Bridging the Gap. You can find us at womenbridgingthegap.com and anywhere you listen to your podcasts.